Oh yeah, another episode. We're live. Oh yeah. How's it going? Oh yeah, pretty good. Yeah. It feels like spring. Yeah, it was like 18 degrees here today. Uh, is that a joke? No. I have my balcony door open, but I'm only allowed to go on the balcony because I'm back in isolation, which is ridiculous. Yeah, for the second time in the last month. Yeah, it feels like we got away with it for so long, and now it's just like karma's caught up, and it's coming on hard. Like, every morning, they're like, we have one person here to get up 45 people, so we have seven minutes. Oh, my God. Yeah, it's just like... It's outrageous. I got my second COVID test today, though. And it was the same lady, so we did our humming ritual together. Didn't you describe your first uh, COVID test as being rather intimate? You hum the whole time. And humming for five seconds is actually pretty hard. I don't understand. Is that supposed to, like, open your nasal passages? or That's what she says. Are you sure she's not just hitting on you? Or maybe she just likes humming. Yeah, she's like, hum. And then you hum a tune together. (laughs) And then she'll harmonize with you while you do it. <laughs> She's like, okay, now quick, say the first seven digits of your phone number. Don't even don't <laughs> think about it. Um, you can't see my hoodie right now, or you can't see the writing on it, but it says basically hiking. And every time I get my attendant to put it on, they uh-huh. read it, but they don't acknowledge it because I don't think they understand that it's okay to like see the irony. What? I think they just thought that I bought it thinking that like, okay, and people put it on me and then they're like, you know, you're not going to go hiking, right? Why are your attendants like uh, numb to irony? I don't understand. I don't I, I think maybe they know it's ironic, but they're not like, they're like, I don't know if I can say that to, to him. Are you just like so consistently funny that they're like numb to it? It's like your humor is white noise. No, not in the morning. I'm not even close to funny in the morning. What are you in the morning? In the morning, I'm like borderline grumpy. Really? What? What? What are? I, I don't know. Have you ever been grumpy toward me? No, but like I'll just be like short. Like people will come in and be like, "Hey, yeah," because every morning my day starts with them coming in, flicking the light on, which is the worst. Yeah, because it's like just such an annoying way to wake up, and then. Now they have to be like, do you have any shortness of breath? Do you have any congestion? Do you have any, and then they'll like list every symptom of COVID. Oh, God. And so it's just like, I'm just like, no. And I'll, sometimes I'll just like shake my head or like, I don't know. It depends who it is, obviously. I have to do the same thing for work. I have to log into this like a uh, personal protective app. I can't remember what it's called, PPA. Is it like designed by your work or it's like a third party? No, it's like, I'm pretty sure it's the government of Canada. But um, mm-hmm. so we log into this tool and click no, 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 no. And then sign our, our names awkwardly with the mouse and then submit it off just so that they know that we're not symptomatic. But why does it even matter if you're working from home? I, that's a good question. Huh. Yeah, I don't know. The whole thing's crazy. Like, I really wish I could just go... Because, so like, on the weekend, I had to do laundry, and usually I always go with them to do my laundry, partially because I don't like the idea of just giving them work to do, and then leaving and just being, like, in my room or whatever. It just feels gross to me to just be like, yeah, okay, go go do my laundry, I'll just be in here hanging out. I don't know, there's something weird, but it feels like I'm 
like driving slaves around. And so I like to go with them. But another probably bigger reason that I like to go is because so often something gets messed up. Like I, I have so many stories of times that I didn't go with them to do the laundry and my clothes will end up like one entire load will be left in the laundry room, left on the bench that's like designated as a free take whatever you want bench. Mm-hmm. Or uh, one time, an entire load of my clothes were found by one of the attendants in another client's closet, yep. like all folded and put away. Yep, that happened to me once. I lost a load of like three of my favorite polos and one hoodie that I kind of cherished. It fit me really well. And you never got them back? Never got them back. Yeah, they're probably still in the office somewhere. Yeah, it's awkward to ask them to like, oh, can you go around and do an audit of everyone else's closet and tell tell me if my fucking clothes are there? Yeah. Yeah. I've had like towels go missing and then weeks later, they'll be like, this towel's been in the office for weeks. Is it yours? Like, yeah, that is my towel. Do you think it would be a much bigger deal if the clients were able-bodied? Like, you think they're, they, they're kind of blasé about it because, like, whatever, so long as there's linens to put on the disabled people, it's fine? <laughs> I don't know what you mean. Like, do you think that their laundry would get done better? <clears throat> no, I mean, like, they're they're pretty cavalier about losing your laundry. Do you think they'd be as cavalier if th- there was more accountability to the clients? Like, if there was more of a consequence yeah, I think they're so overwrought with the amount of work that they have to do yeah. that they can't keep up with the demand. So it's like hard to keep everything separately. And like they're doing one person's laundry while they're folding another person's laundry. And they have to write it all down in these weird coded numbers about which dryer this person's load. Anyway, I think it just gets crazy. But yeah, yeah I mean, it definitely is. That's another part of it. Like, if I let them do my laundry, I feel very institutionalized. And yeah. it probably, whether consciously or not, to them, feels very institutional to be just doing a bunch of clients' laundry. You know what's funny? Um, I have a coworker that jokes that uh, whenever he wants to tell his children to do chores, he'll say, my coworker, Jamie, would love to be able to mow the lawn. <laughs> <laughs> does it work uh, it actually it does yeah that's awesome uh, because well because they've met me and like we're friends they like you yeah and so it means something do you think it would work if it was your kids and you were like i would love to do the dishes right now no of course not and plus that would be pr- pretty cruel and emotionally manipulative it but it, as a throwaway joke about a, a co-worker it kind of works yeah especially when you're like friends it's not like a power dynamic yeah and they sort of understand that he's joking but he kind of not really so yeah it is good perspective though on some level i suppose i was gonna say that you shouldn't necessarily feel obligated to be there with your attendance at every moment that they're doing something on your behalf because i would say like the net inconvenience of the type of 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 the bullshit you have to tolerate because of general inaccessibility sort of like negates all that if i do spend too much time with them then i also feel kind of weird because then it feels like i'm hovering and watching them do the dishes yeah like you're micromanaging yeah and it's like i want to be there as in like hey i don't want you to feel like you're just 
slaving away while I'm doing whatever I want. But I don't want to be so present that I'm making sure you do the dishes the right way. Yeah, but you counter that with like a surplus of social skill. So you basically will engage with them and joke around with them and ask them about their day and make sure that it's a two-way street. Sometimes. Yeah, it depends on like, I don't know, because that it, it does take a lot to, especially when they're like cleaning my house. I can't just follow them around making jokes about sweeping, you know? Hey, well, yeah, you're not a, a dad joke dispenser. <laughs> I mean, but I'm sure they have things they need to talk about or get off their chest or something. That is like uh, okay to share within the professional bounds of attendant care. Yeah. Well, my point was this week I didn't go with them to do laundry. Oh, so did you lose clothes? I didn't lose any clothes. But when I got them all back, first of all, they put two massive loads into one dryer. So nothing was dry. Oh, that used to happen to me too. Yeah. I think they're trying to save you money. But it, it's just ineffective. But yeah. worse than that, I actually ended up with like a bunch of clothes somehow having bleach stains on them. And I don't even use bleach. So I don't know what happened. And I now it's like one of those things. It's just like those clothes are now weekend clothes or whatever. Yeah. Like Sunday afternoon laundry day clothes. Or instant pajamas. Or pajamas. But yeah. It's a little annoying because it feels like maybe if I was there, it wouldn't have happened. But then again, I don't know. Maybe it was actually some crazy thing that would have happened either way. But now it definitely makes me feel like I have to tighten up even more, which is an annoying feeling because I already feel like I hold the reins too tight. I'm 100% sure that they don't think of you as a micromanager. Uh, I really don't know. I guess we'd have to have one of them on here to tell me. Yeah. One day when I can't be on one of the episodes, you can have one of my attendants as a guest and you can get all the juice. I can get all the dirt on you. I can see the other side of the coin. Yeah, exactly. Imagine you're like a fucking tyrant. Imagine you decide from that point on, you're just not going to have me back on. You'll just do the <laughs> podcast with that person. <laughs> but in the mornings, I'm definitely not, I don't think I'm unpleasant, but I don't think I really entertain them in any way at all. Like, I'm definitely not, I don't think, I don't think I'm mean, but I'm just quiet. And like, usually what I'll do is just put music on and just not talk the whole time. Would you say you'd conduct yourself the same way if you were getting up in the midst of a family member or a roommate or a sibling? No, I think it's different. Like, it, it also, like, if I have a close relationship with the person that's getting me up, or to be completely honest, if it's later in the day, I'm better. It's usually just because I'm getting up early and like it takes a lot to try to, and my my morning routine is two hours, sometimes a bit more. So like two hours of me just like instantly flipping on the switch. I don't know. I just, that's not how my body works and my mind works in the morning. I don't think anybody works like that. And besides that, you don't have, you don't drink or consume stimulants in the morning. No. So it's like, how can you expect yourself to be completely on the ball, like right out the gate? I'm definitely a night person and I'm way more alert when it's time to go to bed. And I usually force myself to go to bed at specific times only because I know if I don't, the morning is going to be that much harder. That sounds very responsible. Can I be honest with you? For the last couple of minutes, I've been trying to think of a Devil Wears Prada joke. 
since you were like basically calling yourself like male cripple Meryl Streep. Okay. And, uh, I I can't. So you need me to keep talking while you talk about it? No, no. I I'm just wondering if you have a riff on the devil wears. Who would you be if the devil wears Prada was uh, based on you? I don't know because I've actually never seen the movie. So the only thing I have to go off of is the title itself. Would it be like the devil wears Puma or something because of all your hoodies? Or uh, I see what you're trying to do. Right? Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. It would be the the devil wears Gap. <laughs> <laughs> My my clothes are like eighty percent from the Gap. I have a few from like a few other stores, but why the Gap? Just cause? I don't know. It's just well, I don't really buy. Well, that's not true. I have been buying clothes lately. A lot of my clothes are still from when I was like late teens. Like I haven't. Uh, I have a bunch of new shirts, I guess, but they're all just hoodies and stuff. I don't know. Well, in university, you said you weighed like sub 80 pounds at one point because you were malnourished. Yeah, like 60 pounds. Yeah, when you were talking about your Frosh Week uh, tracheotomy story. <laughs> um, so, but you, I mean, you've kind of fleshed out a bit since then, at least. So I would think your clothes fit you better now, no? I mean, I definitely care more about how things fit. Back then, I just bought a shirt and bought pants because that's what you're supposed to wear. Yeah. And now I actually care more about it. That's why it was actually kind of upsetting when a couple of my favorite hoodies were bleached. Right. Okay, so this is kind of coming full circle. Maybe. I don't know. But some of the bleach stains were full circles. <laughs> and they weren't even like hoodies that you can get away with. Like It's, it's almost like a style. Yeah, they can't be blemished or else it just completely ruins the... It just makes them look like, what did you do to your hoodie? Right. And I think people are going to think like, oh, you must have spilled some like disabled chemical on them. Oh, no, that's another thing, right? That, yeah, <clears throat> there's a stigma against wheelies to to have like um, exceptional hygiene. Well, it's not a stigma. I think people are just so used to going around and seeing people with like, a purse on the side of their chair or wait no that's a bag full of pee and you just get used to like the bizarre things that come along with seeing a disabled person but i try to separate myself from that a little bit so wearing a bleachy hoodie might not do the trick i don't know overall it's not that big of a deal but it just happened so i'm still i wish that i could just take the covid test hum for five seconds do the little chat the the little humming chant with the person who comes and sticks a Q-tip up your nose and then... Because apparently if you smoke, you're in COVID isolation and you smoke, they'll be like, yeah, okay, you can go outside and smoke because they don't... They, they consider that an addiction and they can't stop you from not smoking or stop you from smoking. I, that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, so they'll be like, well, yeah, fair enough. You have to be able to smoke. So go downstairs or go to whatever smoking area is designated to you. So I'm going to take the same loophole to do my own laundry. I was just kind of hoping that the person who administered your COVID test like made an allusion to you calling the number on the back of your intake sheet and her putting the Q-tip somewhere other than your nostril. Wait, you think that that would be a good thing for me? <laughs> no, but it would just be really funny if there was like an awkwardly forward COVID nurse. I just don't know where <laughs> where somebody could put a Q-tip that would excite me. 
I don't know either, but it's like the ambiguity of such a of such a forward suggestion. Where the, do you the, want the, me to put this? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Do you have a preference of nostril or other orifice? <laughs> Maybe there's a buildup of beer wax I can clean up for you. I don't know why you think everyone that interacts with me is some like beautiful twenty or thirty something person. Like she was like a fifty year old lady who was just trying to do her job. I'm incredibly repressed. I haven't seen a real person like in the flesh other than my parents in months. I was thinking about that the other night, like especially during these quarantines that I've been on. It's kind of lucky that I still get to see people, even though it's like through, they're literally wearing like a tarp and then a mask and a face shield that fogs up every time they breathe out. Uh, and like sometimes two layers of gloves, sometimes even they wear those blue booties when they come in. Yeah. When we uh, recorded that episode with Andrew um, and uh, within his webcam, you could see in the background when his attendants arrived toward the end of the episode to make his dinner, like mm-hmm. they started uh, dressing in their PPE, like in the lobby of his apartment. Yeah. And you watch them dress and it's like, like first responder agents of some kind, like coming to contain him and take him off to somewhere. Every time we talk about this, I just think of E.T. and you've never seen it. That's kind of a slippery slope, isn't it? Because then we'd have to watch Stranger Things. No, we wouldn't. Jurassic Park. Wait, how do you draw the link between E.T. and Jurassic Park? Steven Spielberg. I think we have to watch E.T. It's the only movie that you've insisted on watching. And I don't know how many times I've tried to force you to watch movies I'm interested in. And you always oblige because you're a good friend. So I should definitely watch it with you. Out of if nothing but guilt, yes. Do you know what I think it is? I think that the E.T. creature reminds me a lot of another popular uh, puppet of the time in the 80s, which was uh, Master Splinter from the original uh, Ninja Turtles film, Jim Henson in 1989. And Master Splinter was this overgrown man rat with like only pupils for eyes. And he's designed with a certain amount of requisite cuteness, but also is supposed to appear to come from the sewer. Like there's this kind of uh, sinister adult edginess to the character costumes. And I used to have nightmares about Master Splinter as a child and equally so toward E.T. because they have similar exaggerated and frightening features. I I don't think I can stress enough how much I relate to the character of E.T., like, I have one finger that I use to do everything. My body is, like, oddly proportioned. And if I get wet, I get real weird. Hold on. Excuse me? Which part? <laughs> when you get wet, you get weird? Yeah, because I have so much body hair that I just turn into, like, a mole rat. You can actually see what parts of me have been dried because it looks like you've taken, like, a magic eraser to that part of my body. I really want to direct people to the caricature that was drawn for you for your workplace, which I won't mention by name, but it's really handsome. I need to stress to people that you are you are doing yourself a profound disservice in this description of your appearance. The picture you're talking about is just a little chunk of my face. It's your whole face, dummy. Well, yeah, it's my face, <laughs> but that's the least disabled part of me. 
if if I was to catfish someone with just my face, I think I'd be fine. But as soon as you see my neck, then it's off the rails. There's nothing wrong with your neck. You're totally exaggerating. Right now we're chatting over our webcam. Yeah. So like you don't you don't get you don't, you can't even see where my hoodie says basically hiking. So what? I see full portrait uh, photos of you from videos sent to me by our mutual friends' phones. I'll send you a full body nude not as soon and you'll get a better idea. Is that the same one you shared with the COVID nurse? <laughs> <laughs> when she asked me which nostril to pick, I just showed her a nerd. I'd be like, you pick. <laughs> I have at least six nostrils. <laughs> Should we talk about a movie this week or no? Yeah, let's talk about a movie. We did watch a movie, and it, as much as it pains me, I've been thinking about this movie for the last 24 hours. Yeah, I've been thinking about it off and on as well. What did we watch? We watched a 2004 indie film called Rory Was Here. The alternate title in some regions was uh, Inside I'm Dancing. Way better title. Yeah. Only a couple of days ago, you suggested we watch this film and I had never heard of it. And when I heard Inside I'm Dancing, I thought, I bet you a million bucks I'm going to subtitle it Inside I'm Cringing. And for the first at least 80% of the runtime, I was wrong. Trying to pull myself into an Irish accent, but it's another Brenda Fricker movie. Brenda Fricker, yeah. Uh, for our viewers who uh, are not faithful listeners or don't have elephant memories, Brenda Fricker played the mother of Daniel Day-Lewis's triple character in My Left Foot. I think she's just the only maternal character who will let herself be on screen with a wheelie in Ireland. I'm convinced that she has some sort of familial connection to disability and has has some sort of professional obligation to star in movies portraying disability i mean i'm not really up on irish actresses who are mid-50s who can play cold yet warm people at the same time Uh uh-huh but she nails it every time she does yeah she's a a very reliable character actress yeah and even when she's playing a disagreeable character she's enjoyable to watch so the movie starts with my worst nightmare it's a retirement home type facility, long-term care home, whatever you might want to call it. There's a bunch of different people living there, varying disabilities, or just some people look just like they're just old people. Uh, And then there's like a bunch of disabled people. I started playing Spot the Wheelie real quick. You did, yeah, that was the first thing you did. Like, who is disabled? It was like Uncripple Valley for me, trying to figure out. (laughs) <laughs> who was actually in a wheelchair and who was acting. So I'm sorry, did you did you uh, think about that turn of phrase beforehand? Oh, Uncripple Valley? Yeah, Uncripple Valley, yeah, because I was thinking about that too. But in any case, yeah, I was doing the same thing because uh, the movie opens on um, a bunch of wheelies in the common area of a nursing home and the background extras all look as though they are legitimately disabled yeah like any character that has any amount of dialogue in the film is clearly not well there's two there's three or four i don't know if the third third rank wheelie character was not a wheelie 
that was uh, the jury was out on that. But in that case, I sort of assumed that he was able-bodied. I honestly was kind of leaning towards real really for the CP dude for a bit. I know, but uh, I insisted that he was a fraud. He was, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I I think that there's some indication of cerebral palsy on my face 100% of the time. I don't know if that's true. It's totally true. Like in the way that, like in the the asymmetry of my face and like the way that I strain to say words and like just like how I frown or contort or uh, express myself, I I have CP. (laughs) So you think that if you were to play a person with more severe CP than you, you would do a more or less convincing job than a straight AB doing it. I think there would be less of a statistical quotient of the Uncrippled Valley in my performance. But wouldn't it be harder for you because you're trying to amp up something that isn't there so your body would like contort against its own will? Whereas someone with free reign over their body, I would just insist that I only that I only convey the amount of disability that I have and no more. Yeah, but then you wouldn't be cast in this role. That's not true. I don't think that uh, Michael O'Connor or whatever the hell his name is um, ever really does anything that is less than my ability level. Well, jokes on you because I looked him up. It turns out he is disabled. He has severe dyslexia. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> so he might think he has PC. <laughs> <laughs> he had a hard time memorizing his lines, but luckily all they were were Wookiee noises. That's what I'm saying. Like, I don't know if it would be believable for you to have your physical ability level and his speech pattern. I suppose that would be where my casting would be inappropriate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I do sort of feel like he overperforms his own speech impediment. At first, I thought he was good at it. But as the movie went on, it was weak. And especially for his character, because like you said, he just sounds like someone in a submarine communicating with a whale. Yeah. There is no way for him to have to be a disabled person. Or sorry, an able-bodied person. Like, why couldn't they have just cast... A person with CP who has a speech impediment. Right, exactly. He wasn't even that good of an actor, to be honest. No, I don't think there was any like element of his role or part of his performance that would have been made easier by the fact that he was off-camera able-bodied. Yeah, it might have been harder to produce because you would have had to like actually transfer him for scenes. That's BS. And plus, that would have lent some credibility to the proceedings. I kind of understand the James McAvoy character, who we haven't really introduced yet. But, like, even though, again, it wouldn't be that hard for anyone with MD to do that role, you actually do have to be a good actor to be, to be convincing in that role. Yeah, I described the James McAvoy character as like a manic pixie dream wheelie. I actually just watched a movie with a manic pixie dream boy uh, called Last Christmas, I think. So what made what made him a manic pixie dream boy? Well, maybe it was maybe it's the almost the inverse of the trope. Her life was falling apart, and he was this kind of like guardian angel, kind of like perfect man who came along and sort of made her want to be 
the best version of herself that she could be. Yeah. And so she, her character arc was basically just being less selfish and a more generous, more humble person. Yeah. So the trope is it's basically a person who comes into the life of an emotionally eject, like dejected protagonist and turns on all the lights and shows them their potential and teaches them how to let go of all of their shoulds and all of the responsibilities that tether them to aspects of themselves that they don't like. And just to live life to the fullest and embrace the world and yada, yada. And they're, they, they, they just seem sort of outside the realms of uh, real human behavior. James McAvoy is a manic pixie dream wheelie who bursts onto the scene of this dusty, crippled nursing home. Can we just talk for a second about how close? I don't know if it's the same for you, but for me, that is probably my worst nightmare. I think everything that I do consciously and subconsciously is to make sure I don't end up in a place like that. So I understand your anxiety. I am kind of worried that my present situation is not actually as self-sufficient as I think. And were I ever to lose my parents as my primary caretakers, either from unfortunate life circumstance or uh, from taking on more than I can chew from a direct funding sort of arrangement or whatever, the current freedoms that I have, I'd have to settle for a lower quality of life Yeah, just to live day to day, even though I ostensibly make, you know, a comfortable income and I'm fiscally responsible and I don't have any destructive vices anymore. This is a, turning into a great dating profile, honestly. <laughs> What's your height, just for the listeners? I don't know. The jury's out on that because my back is... How do you measure a wheelie's height? Uh, height is like some sort of like superficial form of status. And the only reason it, it matters like in a dating context is whether or not the person uh, cares that their partner is shorter than them. And when you're in a wheelchair... No one really evaluates you based on your height because you're sitting. So you have your your stature, like it's maybe one of the perks of being in a chair because the chair affords you a kind of uh, metaphorical height. I don't know. I'm so curious. Like, can you reach to the third shelf for the chips? I get into regular arguments with my uh, mom about how inaccessible the coffee cups are because <laughs> they're on the top shelf of the kitchen and i can't reach them i have to do this maneuver where i stand on my foot pedals and hold myself up by my arms and open the door and then spend six minutes finding my center of gravity to reach for the cup yeah it's really painful and i keep telling my mom that she needs to afford me some regular counter space for my one coffee cup that i need throughout the day and <laughs> she she needs she has a pathological need for clean surfaces. My mom, by the way, is a really cool person, very great sense of humor. Like I actually don't mind living with her and we get along <laughs> fantastically. But she just she has these these fixations that drive me crazy and are subtly ableist and that cause uh, tension between us on a regular basis. But luckily we know how to make each other laugh so we can get through it. It sounds like you're saying you wish you were taller. (laughs) (laughs) 
I mean, I suppose it would make reaching for my coffee cup easier, but I don't actually think it would improve my dating life. No, I agree. It's it's such a weird thing. It's such an annoying thing that's so weirdly ingrained in online dating. But even when you're filling out your profile, it's like one of the required answers, like how much do you weigh and how tall are you? And I honestly don't even know what the answer is. Am I supposed to put how tall I would be if you were to put me in like a 19th or 14th century stretching machine? Or is it just like floor to height ceiling of where I am when I'm sitting? Yeah. Or is it it when my chair is elevated? Is that the height? Is it when I'm tilted back? Is it pre or post spinal fusion? Is it like if I have my head straight or off to the side? It's only again uh, for the optics of uh, the couple. It has nothing to do with the actual practical utility of your excess height. Yeah. And so when, because disabled people are not evaluated on their height, it doesn't really matter. Maybe we should just start saying in our dating profiles, like, I'm short, but I can buy a step stool. I mean, we should start citing the maximal height setting of our of the hydraulic uh, component of our chair. Yeah, I'll just be like, it goes up eight inches. I'll let you figure out what it is. Yeah, when I'm super excited, I'm uh, five foot eight. Uh, when it's when I'm just at my my work desk, I'm five foot five. So you're saying you would also be terrified to live here? I would, yeah, because I think that I think that I would not be able to be myself in that environment too much of what I need to do would be suppressed in order for the operation of the institution. It would feel like the worst Easter Seals camp that you can never leave because there's probably some cool attendants or some cool clients, but you're always like, this isn't where I should be. To be honest with you, um, in my first year of Carleton, I did feel that way. Like that's what you felt. You felt like it was camp. Uh, yeah, I felt like I was being separated from the people that I had chosen to go to school with. From my core able-bodied crew, I felt like whenever I needed to interact with attendant care, that I was being removed from my able-bodied crew. Yeah. I had two. I had two lives basically. I had my life with my roommates and with the attendants and with some of my friends within that circle. And then I had my off-campus life. Were you like embarrassed to combine them? No, I wasn't embarrassed of the people that I met within attendant care. Um, I A lot of the time I met people who coped in ways that I valued a lot, but I was also coming to terms with my disability and with how our peers at Carleton looked at disability and it was much different from my upbringing so there was there was a strong clash of values for at least a couple of years there and also me kind of confronting aspects of my because I had like uh, stress and anxiety and like anger management issues and they all kind of came to a head without my usual support system from high school so there was just all kinds of elements floating in the air that I had to deal with on my own yeah, there are different social pressures placed upon you as a disabled person in a disabled social circle than there are with able-bodied people. I feel like you're held accountable to your emotions and to your behavior more in a disabled community. 
um, because like you're not given any kind of excuses. Yeah. Um, and so if, if you have internalized some ableist thinking about how other disabled people should be or about expectations you need to impose upon yourself, then even simply stating those expectations will get you in, in hot water. And I was in hot water a number of times after in high school being this kind of like agreeable, like uh, top student, like never really raised any kind of trouble like other than the odd like uh drinking on the weekends i'd never really i was always straight laced and well behaved and good reputation and everything and i'm not saying it was different at carlton but there are different definitely demons i had to confront in myself in that environment that i never would have confronted if i had just gone to lu and continued to stay with my parents your comment straight laced brought me to a really weird off-topic question but did you ever wear velcro shoes <laughs> i wore laceless like loafers for years and they were just always like so cheap and ugly they were like they were like a couple degrees away from crocs and they were just always what i wore and i always lamented that i couldn't wear stylish expensive sneakers because of how often my shoelaces would come untied and get caught in the spokes of my casters. Do you wear laces now? Uh, yes, but that's because someone ties my shoes every morning. And they don't come untied? Well, very rarely because I'm in a power chair all of the time. But when I was in a three-wheeled scooter, I had to do all kinds of awkward transfers all day. And that would inevitably lead to uh, loose laces. Yeah, I never really thought about your laces being the reason you didn't wear shoes. But it makes sense because... We've already talked about how much you hate putting socks on. <laughs> I mean, we can talk about it again if you want. No, to. I really don't want to. Let's talk about how the movie starts. They're in this like hellhole of a nursing home, whatever facility, long term care. It's funny that we call it a hellhole because, like, on the surface, if I was an able bodied viewer, there's not there's not a whole lot to dread about it. Yeah, other than Rory. Like the other main characters in the film are actually quite happy to be there for the most part. They're all dressed in really stuffy clothes. Well, we could talk about learned helplessness. Yes. Because I think that's why they are quote unquote happy to be there. If you're disabled, you're you have to rely on people for so much of your daily life that you almost forget what parts of your life you can actually control. So you are sort of learn, you sort of learn to be helpless for lack of a better word. And you, you can get into a situation where the mere suggestion that you try to do something for yourself or to change some aspect of your daily routine uh, can be very uh, subversive and, and difficult, almost offensive. I think because we're, at least for me, I'm so hyper aware of, it's almost like a slippery slope argument. Like if you start taking my whatever thing, like you you don't give me, I don't need to have a shower every single day. But I feel like if you acknowledge that and then someone takes your shower one day or you give up your shower one day and that's totally fine, then they'll be like, oh, well, then you don't need it tomorrow or the next day or any time this month. And then eventually 
you feel like it's because you let yourself slip in the first place. Yeah, it's like there's this idea of scarcity of care. And it's always looming over you, no matter whether you're succeeding in like the traditional tenets of of, of life as a disabled person, um, like merely uh, conceding to the like organizational constraints of a care home could dramatically change your quality of life. Well, they can though. That's the crazy. That's the scary part. Is because I think I feel this looming presence where you know I have to fight so hard tooth and nail. Sometimes I hate myself for the types of things I have to get annoyed about. Like, I don't really care that a few of my shirts are now just Sunday afternoon shirts. But, like, I feel like I have to make a bigger deal of it because if I don't, then it feels like, and I don't know how true it is, but I have witnessed in my own case even where the more complacent you get, the more people will try to take more and more from you and it's very quickly possible for those boundaries to just get eroded we we, you always think of those kinds of uh transgressions as being obvious or having this like clear sense of wrongdoing happening but like losing certain elements of your care can be so subtle and it can happen so easily over time and almost unconsciously like not from a point of view of malice or neglect or uh, laziness on the part of the care worker. It's just resources. Yeah. A matter of like systemic necessity. Yeah. This movie actually handled it pretty perfectly. At the beginning of the movie, Rory comes in with a very ableist hairstyle. Yeah. I actually commented on that uh, in the, in the opening scene. Um, the thing about Rory is that he he presents like uh, a huge fan of it's kind of like punk rock. Uh, yeah, early two thousands punk rock. So he wears uh, the baggy jeans and band shirts or whatever. But yep, baggy band shirts and an abundance of spiky hair gel, like my Italian friends used to wear in two thousand two. His hair is just full of gel. I did like how they didn't have. The back of his head gelled because that's where his headdress would be. Yeah. And I actually think about, because my hairstyle for the longest time was just pretty much a buzz cut. Like I would just kind of buzz it down on the sides and maybe a little bit longer on the top. But it wasn't anything where you had to style it. And I, I was always kind of under the, the, the rule that if my hair got too long, so long that I needed to comb it, that just meant I needed to get a haircut. Are you saying that you settled for no hairstyle uh, just for practicality of care? It was so practical. And even to this day, my current hairstyle, although I like it a lot better than my old one, I've basically had like three hairstyles in my whole life. And this one is the, the most ableist hairstyle that I've ever had. But I still, even to this day, because of my headrest and the way my head sits in my headrest, kind of like at an angle. So the right side of my head is always rubbing up against the headrest. And if I, if my hairstyle is a certain way, then by the end of the day, it turns into a mohawk every time. And I yeah. hate that hairstyle. And so I've had conversations with my barber where I'm like, hey, so I need a hairstyle that looks good, 
like looks like I care about my appearance, but also is not so ableist that uh, my attendants aren't going to be able to do it. Because that's another thing is I have to be able to talk literally anyone through doing my hair. It can't be some crazy procedure. Mm-hmm. It has to basically just be like, put that stuff in and then push it this way. And can you try to cut it so that the headrest doesn't interfere with it? So my barber has gotten good where he can kind of cut around the headrest. So if I didn't have a headrest, my hair would actually look bizarre. But the headrest kind of like covers a certain part of my hair. And they kind of did that in this movie with his hairstyle too. Do you feel like you could uh, blog uh, for other people with SMA about (laughs) how to style their hair? I'm not being cheeky. Like that's a real question. No, because I've only had three hairstyles. And one of them was like the ski jump. Remember the ski jump hairstyle? You're you're just talking about subtle forms of self-expression that are essential to feeling like a person. Yeah, but it also requires someone else to actually do it. So what? I'm sure a lot of attendants enjoy helping you with your hair. They probably wish that there were um, that more clients had aspects of their morning routine that were enjoyable in that way. Every time I ask someone to shave my beard, people get like genuinely nervous. Or some people will just straight up be like, I'm not doing that. Why? Because they're like, I, I, I don't want to be responsible if I mess it up. I mean, that's the risk you take. I, I was going to say my sister um, is like by no means a superficial person. Very hardworking. I, <laughs> I, if, I, if I go into this story without that preface, it's going, she's going to sound superficial. <laughs> but she isn't. Because I was going to say that in COVID... She's been hyper-responsible, super-vigilant. But, like, the one reason she leaves the house is to go see her friend who runs a salon. And she does it twice a month in order to keep her hair, you know, in in good shape. And it's because, like, her hair is, like, an essential aspect of her presentation. And it makes her feel good. And it distinguishes her. And when she evaluates herself based on her look, like disability doesn't factor into it. I don't know. Yeah, no, I totally get it. My my hair is one of the last things that I actually have control over. Mm-hmm. And it's it's simple, but it makes a profound difference. It's one of those slight social cues that can tell someone that you both value your appearance and you participate in certain expectations of hygiene yeah it's like a kind of literacy and and if you can convey it then someone will be willing to think of you as more quote-unquote normal which may not necessarily be a good thing but it's important for your confidence right yeah it's just like you said it's a self-expression so if you feel if you look in the mirror and you're like, I like what I see, then that's a good thing, you know? And if it's you have to do your hair or shave your beard in a certain way or whatever, then all the power to you, especially if you're a woman and you have to keep your beard shaved, then definitely do that. It's like for me, like I have no aspirations of having uh, a nice hairstyle that my hair is gross. You complain about your hair a lot, though. Like on the podcast? During COVID. 
Oh, I do because it like when I said we should start doing videos for the podcast, and I go try to get a haircut. Yeah, because it I just I hate it. Yeah, so even to you, it is a form of expression, and if it doesn't feel like you're expressing yourself the way you want to, then your confidence isn't as high as it should be. I just I never want to look like there's a part of my life that suffers from neglect, which right. is something that I think that the the outside world or able-bodied world sort of expects from us, that we look in some way unkept. Yeah. Or if they don't expect it, they're just like, oh, I get it. Yeah. Or like, oh, that fits. Yeah. And I just, I desperately need to defy that like uh, pervasive expectation and I feel like that in a lot of ways like is the weight of disability. It's not necessarily that you can't walk, but it's the it's the atrophy of expectations from the outside world. Damn, that's poetic. The atrophy of expectations. Yeah. Well, this movie, back to the movie, yeah. did atrophy Rory's expectations when day <laughs> one after they gave him a shower. They're like, oh, yeah, so the manager of the place told me I'm not going to have time yeah. to do your hair every day. Yeah, we don't have resources to put hair in your, or to put gel in your hair. And that was the first thing where he's like, I hate this place. Yeah. And understandably so, because, I mean, I've been there. I've literally had someone try to say, your morning routine is too long. Do you think we could just stop doing your hair? It, the movie all like succeeds in making his unstyled hair seem like deeply like uh, undignified and embarrassing. They nailed it, and I think they nailed that part of it where they start to, even if it's the smallest thing, like oh, sorry, we're not going to be able to do your hair the way you want it to. I guess that's what kind of fosters the connection between the other main character, Michael, uh, and Rory, because it's Michael who sees the attendants refuse to do Rory's hair. And then in spite of Michael's spasticity, he decides to try to help yeah. Rory style his hair. Um, and the scene is actually played out really tactfully. It's awesome. Yeah, it's funny. Um, and just the the setting itself of the nursing home, there's a lot of little touches to it that make it feel very authentic like if you're a disabled person watching yeah like the the layout of the showers that they use like the granite like on all four walls <laughs> and the shower hoses it's kind of gloomy yeah the 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 in in their actual bedrooms like the types of beds that they use and the positions of the grab bars and like just furniture layout and stuff it betrays like a an understanding of how these environments are typically laid out. Like remind me a whole lot of the layout of Leeds house at Carlton or, uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's one of the residences. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so that scene where he's giving him a shower, I guess that's also when he starts to be, Rory starts to be able to understand uh, Michael's character. Mm -hmm. To see his uh, uh, generosity. Well, I mean like, actually understand the words that are coming out of his mouth. <laughs> oh, that, that's true, yeah. Yeah, because that's kind of how they become friends. It's like, wait, you can understand me because nobody else in the world can. Mm -hmm. And so if you can understand me, 
I'll do your hair for you for sure if you'll be my translator. Right, yeah. And uh, not to mention that um, not only do people tell Michael that they don't understand him, but they keep telling him to use these like antiquated tools to spell out the words that he's trying to say. So it takes him 25 minutes to construct a sentence. And who has the fucking time for that bullshit? When when they're telling Rory how to talk to Michael, Rory's like, is he worth it? Like, is he worth the effort? <laughs> yeah. Does he have good things to say? Yeah. So there's 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 these like really uh, really cool moments of uh, honesty and like tenderness between the two of them right off the bat. The bond between them is incredibly believable. Well, also it's believable when a wheelie helps another wheelie because I feel like in my experience when that happens, we all kind of get asking for help is hard. Getting help is harder. Yeah. And so it always feels like whenever I'm in a group of wheelies, the wheelies want so badly to be able to... I've seen one wheelie try to, like, put another wheelie's foot back on their foot plate, and they'll put in way more effort than any one able-bodied person would have to do. Yeah. And it'll take 35 minutes to do it, even though it would take an able-bodied person... Four seconds or less. I've seen that too. And it, it's so endearing to see because they all get it. Like, hey, it's hard to get this help. I'll sit here and do whatever I can do to try to help you because I know what you need. I know how hard it is to get what you need. And able bodied people never quite get that. No matter how close they are to you, it is really hard because it's such an innate understanding. You'd have to be like, really close to disability to fully grasp. I have a question that might seem like a non sequitur. Do you ever have able-bodied people in your life that you imagine what they would be like if they were suddenly disabled and you evaluate whether they would be a good or a bad wheelie? I don't think I've ever thought that. Maybe sometimes I think that when I hear people complain, because people that complain all the time, uh-huh. Just irk me. Yeah. Especially when it's people that work here that complain all the time. It's like, are you complaining to your clients? Like to the people that like you're here because how hard their life is? Yeah. Like, yeah. The reason you have a job is because the people you're complaining to have a hard life. Yeah, like exponentially harder than yours. Yeah. And that's not to say we don't have like compassion or empathy for them. Of course we do. No, like if if you're if you have a genuine complaint, I totally get it. Yeah. But there are just some people who feel it feels like they're nonstop unhappy. Uh-huh. And that to me is such a turnoff. Oh yeah. Uh not even like relationship wise, just like person wise. Uh and so yeah, when I see people complain incessantly all the time. Yeah. Then I'm like, you make a bad wheelie. I have this coworker who I'm actually very fond of, um, who is a long distance runner. And he really pushes himself when he's training, like on a daily basis. Yeah. And runs like tens of kilometers a day and just nonstop. And so, yeah, the inherent discipline and the drive is there. It's just that sometimes at work, like around the water cooler, he'll just start complaining about how his knees since he turned 40 have been so <laughs> relatively unreliable 
and he'll he'll just talk about like a Charlie horse that he's been trying to cope with for the last few days <laughs> and how he just like really wishes uh he could stop training and I just want to be like dude yes please it's hard running everywhere I'm so sorry it's hard being an exceptionally physical uh an athletic specimen yeah oh wow are you kidding to be fair though the people that complain the least when they do complain those yeah. are the people I want to help the most yeah I, the thing is, like, I, uh, I will, I will point this out to to this coworker, and he he gets like a really good laugh out of it. Like, I yeah. kind of vent my frustration with him because I envy him because I I try to be a physically active person within the confines of within my limits, mm-hmm. and I know it's trivial and it's kind of a joke, <clears throat> and it looks funny even when I move. Agreed, but I try and. It's important to me to try however healthy or unhealthy that is. Like that's that's part of my identity for whatever reason. Yeah. And so so yeah, so I understand his desire to push himself beyond what is practical and what not. But then I also get jealous because I would love I would love to have like a runner's high multiple times a week. It's just so it's amazing. I would love it. And I've experienced it from time to time, like on a stationary bike or whatever, or on my silly little therapeutic reverse K walker. Uh, so yeah, I'll point this out to the coworker and he'll laugh. And I'm like, there's a part of me that is genuinely angry at him at the time. Sure. And it makes it funny. I yeah. hope, like, I hope, I hope I'm not just like fucking ruining the guy's day. No, I doubt it. If, if even if you are, he can just run away. Yeah, what fuck? Just find a staircase and fuck off. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah, no, that's the only time I've ever thought about someone as disabled, and just how they would do. It's like if you're, because I think an innate part of being a good wheelie, yeah, or like a fundamental part of it is to be able to manufacture a positive outlook. Yeah. And that, you know, like I'm definitely not like a, like a beacon of positivity, even on a regular basis or whatever. Correct. Yeah, but I mean, like humor, you know. Yeah. Be be funny or something. Try. I've definitely had people say to me like, "Oh, if I ever had to do what you do, I just kill myself." Honestly, like no disrespect, but I just couldn't do it. See that's stupid. That's and that's so insulting. Because so what they're because what they're actually saying is I don't think Kill your yourself. life. Is, yeah, they're saying I don't think your life is worth living, yeah. even though they don't know you, and they don't know how you cope, and they don't know the ways in which you get relief and joy out of life because yeah. they haven't thought about your experience for five minutes more than what it means to be disabled. And that's super ironic for I suppose a podcast that is all about our disabilities, but it's not all about that. No. fuckers no. which is why sometimes i get really tired of these these crippled movies being all about uh cripples solving the same problems over and over again yeah well it's also like people human beings are stay alive machines yeah like that's what we do yeah so if we, you get presented with a disability that prevents you from walking or something yeah your every part of your being is telling you to get over it and overcome it yeah. and find a way through it. Find a fucking substitute for walking, you know? Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I don't know. Take up rowing or something. Do you think about your friends becoming disabled all the time? So I sometimes, yeah. There's one or two people where I think about it from time to time, and I think I don't think they would cope very well. Do you have friends that you think would do really good? Yes. Yeah. I do. Yeah. You know. You know. You know our friend J Dark. Yeah. I think he would be an amazing wheelie. Yeah. Yeah. He definitely seems to have like a good disposition. Yeah. And I really think that's all it really comes down to is your disposition. Totally. Anyway, we should talk about this movie. Okay. So the movie's basically the portrait of a friendship between two wheelies. And we loved it uh, for at least the first two thirds um, because like, yeah, like all the basic story beats are are taken away from other movies you know like eventually rory and michael um they get a like a a school bus trip away from the nursing home yeah to raise money yeah to go collect uh charitable donations from people in the streets of ireland or whatever and rory decides like fuck this shit i hate this uh i'm gonna take our collections money and go to the bar yeah and he's like, Michael, you're coming with me. I like you. You're a good person. You put gel in my hair. Uh, I know what you're saying. So let's go. Let's go be one whole person together, which is not the actual dialogue, but whatever. You can hold my drink and I can order your drink for you. He, yeah. And so, you know, uh, disabled uh, James McAvoy, who in this case is not Professor X. It's definitely prep for him to be disabled. You think he's a devotee? That's what I was thinking. Yeah. If you've had more than one role as a cripple and you're not a wheelie, uh, you got, there's something, you got something going on. Yeah. He wants to be for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. He wants to, he wants to bone some spokes. (laughs) That was terrible. That was really bad. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) Just joking. Uh, So yeah. So they go to the bar together. And uh, Rory strikes up a conversation with some women and they hit it off. They have drinks and it's like a proper night out at the club. Uh, And his flirting is believable. It's charming. Yeah, I was taking notes. Pardon? Yeah, I know, right? Like, I thought he was pretty cool. Yeah. He did a good job. And Michael's sort of along for the ride. He's like a little bit enamored with Rory uh, in terms of his overall social skill in the face of this situation. They also have trouble going pee, which was fun and realistic. Wait, 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 wait. You fast forwarded through something I wanted to talk about. Um, okay. The part where they're flirting and there's the four of them at the table mm-hmm. and then it's like time for them to leave. And the one girl that's been talking to Rory the whole time seems like down to stay. Like she's really enjoying her time. Yeah. And the other girl really wanted to leave and didn't really want anything to do with it. Yeah, she's like, she's very worried about the optics of the situation. Do you think it would have been the same if the girls were reversed? Like, do you think it was because she was paired up with Michael, who is more visibly disabled, has a harder time talking, et cetera, et cetera? Or... Is that just who she is? Because it was hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that maybe the amount of disabled they are is also proportional or correlated to the amount that the girl was interested. 
Well, I think the surprise of Rory being um, more than just a potato bag, which is very on the nose because it's Irish. So give me some credit. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it's 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 the surprise of Rory being such a capable flirt and of announcing up front that he knows they don't have high expectations and of trying to have fun anyway. And then Michael sort of being lost in translation and out of his element and nervous and not knowing really how to connect quite yet. So it he couldn't necessarily um, distract his girl from what was happening. And I think right. she just didn't appreciate the uh, being put upon in this situation, like having this social situation essentially forced upon her. I was just kind of sad that Michael's character, Michael kind of ended up being getting the shaft in all the romantic ways while, you know, even though neither of them made any genuine progress, it definitely felt like Rory was making more. And it's, was it because he had more personality or was it because he was less disabled? I think it's because he was able to convey the full extent of his personality yeah. and Michael wasn't. But Michael wasn't as a result of his disability. Right. But also not just because of that, actually, I think the, I think the movie does somewhat argue that Michael's hurdles are from a lack of social skill from a lack of experience. Yeah. But that's also maybe I'm pulling teeth now, but, that's because of his disability because he lived in that care home for so long that like, where would he get social experiences? Yeah. Because he was denied certain opportunities, you know, he, his biological father disowned him and put him in the home. So denied him community. I think it's just a harsh reality, but I'm having a hard time facing it because uh, I know what it could be like. And, I've seen people, you know, I've worked with a lot of different people with different disabilities, and I've seen how people get treated or sort of pushed to the sidelines because of a speech impediment or something like that. Yeah. When you really don't understand what they're saying, and then when you do understand what you're saying, what they're saying, you realize how much humor and substance is in what they're saying. And so it is really frustrating when... You see that even like I can go out in public with someone with a speech impediment uh-huh. and I get this, they get the same thing from me as I get when I'm with an able-bodied person yeah. where the person will be like, sorry, what is he saying? Or what does he want? Yeah. And say, so, I don't know, ask him. And it's so frustrating. Relatively speaking, you understand like you both understand their disability, but also how they are marginalized. Yeah. And so even though it is just a reality mm-hmm. and they portrayed it as that reality, mm-hmm. it's a hard pill to swallow. Totally. Fundamental barriers to communication are like oftentimes a more significant disability than um, physical obstacles. Absolutely. I think I, I've said it before, but I, if I couldn't articulate the way I can, mm-hmm. I would be way worse off. Roger Ebert, in the last few years of his life, had jaw cancer. Yeah. So he had 
he had surgery to replace the bone in his jaw, I guess, with non-cancerous bone. And this, like the surgery failed, his body rejected the, the transplant, I guess. And so he had to live the last like half decade or so of his life without a lower jaw. And so mm-hmm. you, you see pictures of him and like he is not the person that he like his whole brand, his image, it's inconsistent. Like it's a really, it's a really tough situation. Yeah. Like fundamentally, like it's hard. Like just seeing, just seeing photos of him is like, Oh my God, you poor man. Jeez. And, and uh, <clears throat> like, I, I love him as a reviewer. Uh, he's not like really trained in like film theory or anything like that, but he was so wonderful at having conversations about film and his reviews are so uh compassionate i i guess the word is there's a warmth in all of them and also when he hates a film or he finds their themes to be sinister he uh like goes to war with them in in a really like hilariously combative way to the point where his articles feel almost like stand-up comedy routines there's like a dry kind of british wit yeah, it's very sardonic. Yeah, and it, I don't know, man. Like, I, I went back and read his review of Rory O'Shea. And again, I got that same kind of feeling, that same um, conversation with a friend vibe. In the last few years of his life, he was also his most prolific. Like, he wrote more reviews per day while he was uh, coping with uh, late stage cancer. It's a great way to cope, right? Like you yeah. Watch movies. Well, it kept his, it kept his, his voice intact though. Like he had a kind of Stephen Hawking setup, and they had enough of uh, his uh, enough recordings of his voice from Siskel and Ebert at the movies and Ebert and Roper and all this type of shit to be able to make an accurate uh, reproduction of his voice in digital form. That's so cool. But I, I think he kept writing so vociferously because he, he uh, because that was who he was. And um, like, I didn't even realize that this had happened to him until after, after he died. Uh, like, I guess he might have blogged about it, but he didn't mention it too much in, in his actual reviews yeah. about what it's like living jawlessly. <laughs> so, so I never got the sense that, his, that he didn't have a voice. Because I always, because it's kind of like in my head when I think about movies or when I reflect on some of his favorite, some of his best reviews. I have a book of, of, of his reviews of Zero Star Films because they are so fucking funny. <laughs> All of that is to say, like, poor Michael from Rory O'Shea for not being able to say. Wait, so what did Ebert say about this movie? He said that it was one of two uh, disabled films in 2005 that he saw that. Uh, spoke to the disabled experience in ways that he'd never thought before. And he yeah. compared it to another film that came out the same year that actually starred a woman with uh, with uh, motor neuron d- disease. Up until the point where we both got lost, I will say this movie was probably the freshest take on a wheelie movie that I've ever seen. Yeah. Uh, including the ones we've watched for this. Yeah. Like, it was so good at playing with my heart just because of how real it was like they had all the details right Uh from like you said like the environment to the the dialogue was 
uh, believable. The uh-huh. interactions with people were really believable. Yeah. I really felt whoever wrote this had some profound understanding of disability. Yeah, like they, they really had wonderful consultants for the film. Yeah, and because maybe because it was Irish, I don't really know why, but they didn't seem to shy away or gloss over anything. There was a kind of a grit to it. Yeah. There are several moments throughout the movie where either Rory or Michael have to solve small problems. Like, for example, Michael has to pee after a night out at the bar, but it's raining outside. And so they find a small uh, underpass to park themselves over. And Michael spends 15 minutes trying to tilt his pelvis over the side of his chair so he can fucking take a leak. Yeah. And then there's obviously the scene with the hair gel. There's another scene where Rory convinces someone to put them to put him in the passenger seat of their car and take him for like a, a race around the neighborhood that they move into with an accessible apartment. And the kid who's driving the car gets busted by the cops. And then Rory's like stuck in the seat of the car and can't do anything. And the cop is basically like trying to aggressively push him out of the car, but he can't move. And so Michael has to try to tell the cop that Rory's actually a cripple. And so it's like, it's this kind of high concept. Like it's probably the most elastic thing that happens in the movie. Um, But there's a, a weird sincerity or authenticity to it. Well, there was also that moment where, and I don't know if I've ever talked to you about this, but I've had real fantasies, vivid fantasies of what it would be like to be in prison. Not because I want to be a criminal, but because I'm so morbidly curious what the prison system would do to me. Like, who would get me up in the morning? Would they send in a PSW every morning? Would the guard just have to do it? Would my cellmate do it? Or would they just not put me in it altogether? Would they just put me in house arrest? Would they put me in a psych ward? Like, I'm really, I guess, obviously, it depends what crime I commit. But I am very curious how they handle, how they would handle my disability. I'm not sure I'm comfortable with the tense of that sentence. What crime I commit? It sounds like you're planning something. (laughs) What crime I would have to commit. Is that is that <laughs> a little bit? Yeah. So hold on. Like, do you have some fantasy of like uh, of um, masterminding an escape from a prison in spite of your disability? No, honestly, I just kind of want to like. I'd really like to do a documentary where I go to prison for a day or like a month or something. Imagine you found out that, that prison was better than VHA, and you opted to stay in the penal system. Maybe part of me is wondering if I live in a prison right now. It this reminds me of like, like Brooks was here, like the librarian from the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. <laughs> here along with Rory O'Shea. I imagine it would be absolutely terrible. Like, again, it would depend on the crime. Like if I was, if they empathized with me, maybe I'd get better care. Is Canada's penal system better funded than their like home care uh, programs? That's a very, very good question. I don't know. But if it is, I don't think the funding is going towards personal care. It's going towards like, you know, inmate basketball courts and lunch rooms. It'd be so funny if they just had like a full supply of pressure socks 
and like like a full a full blown like cosmetologist on staff to like do your hair every morning. I think that I would probably end up in either like house arrest or a psych ward in a hospital. I don't think they'd put me in a prison. It'd be cool if you ended up in in like an elaborate like glass chamber, like Sands of Lambs or something. It definitely has to depend on. Oh, if anyone is listening, then we could call you Tony Hopkins and is in a wheelchair and has been to prison. Did you hear what I just said? Yeah, but it wasn't more important than what I was saying. (laughs) (laughs) Tony Hopkins. (laughs) Yeah, I just want to say if anyone out there in a wheelchair listening to this has been to prison, please reach out to our email address, crippledthreatpodcast at gmail.com and tell us all about it. I'm very curious. Anyway, the reason I brought that up is because he gets hilariously angry that the cop isn't going to take him to prison once he finds out he's disabled. And he's like, that's discrimination. You have to take me to prison. Uh, You would obviously be taking me to prison if I wasn't disabled. So you can't not take me to prison if I am. It's just like that old thing about um, being annoyed that no matter how much you push boundaries, some people will always infantilize you. And that's the reason I want to go to prison. <laughs> I feel like that would be so terrible. Because my life is so comfortable right now. Mm-hmm. Like I have a nice bed. I sleep a decent number of hours. I have no roommate except for a cat. I get a shower pretty regularly. I was going to say all but the last item on that list were super depressing. <laughs> <laughs> Having a comfortable bed is depressing. Who to share it with? Yeah, that's true. It's way too big for one person. Yeah. So we should mention in this movie, uh, Rory sort of rallies Michael into applying for direct funding so that they can leave the disabled gulag, the nursing home that they currently reside in. Yeah. Uh, And the... The review board for whether or not you get that funding is much like the parole board in the Shawshank Redemption, where like they have to go up in front of a group of people and explain, like the disabled people have to go up in front of a group of stuffy, able-bodied, like, I don't know, occupational therapists and tell them why they deserve to live on their own. And this panel rejects Rory on a number of occasions because he like dares to have a personality, I guess. He drinks and listens to loud music. Yeah, they call him fiscally irresponsible. Yeah, this, that seems a little bit weird to me. But I mean, I like from the stories you tell and other sort of loosely tangential anecdotes, maybe that's not that unrealistic. I don't know. I don't know. I've been through part of the process, but not. I haven't been to an interview because I've pulled out out of fear too many times, being like, I don't think I'm ready to give up what I have. Yeah. But I do think that they, like, I think basically their job is to make sure you are fit for self-direction. Right. And so you have to be, I don't think, I don't think they're super strict with what that means. Like, I think they let a lot of people try it out and just fail on their own. Uh, So I'm sure Rory would probably get it in a real world. Uh Uh-huh. But I did read that this movie was written by a guy who was helping his friend apply for something like this. Interesting. So maybe he didn't get it, and that's why they wrote the movie. I don't know. But anyway, Michael gets it on the, and then he uh, 
he hires Rory. Yeah, he hires Rory to be his speech interpreter. Uh, and then he goes to his deadbeat dad, who is a well-paid lawyer. Yeah, Michael goes to Michael's deadbeat dad. Right. And says, uh, I need money to afford a flat on a gr- on the gr- on a ground floor. And uh, my friend Rory's going to live with me and we need to be able to pay an in-house attendant. So, I mean, that scene felt a little bit cheesy to me. There was the same scene in uh, The Fundamentals of Caring where, you know, you got to see a deadbeat family member sort of avoid eye contact with their disabled child because they know that they've, whatever, uh, failed it. I don't know. Yeah, but the deadbeat dad or deadbeat parent to a really per, uh, isn't necessarily an irrational trope. And probably not completely unrelatable. I, I recognize that. It did lead you to ask me questions about my absent parents. I did. That's true. Although I didn't directly draw parallels with the film. Right. So for you, that that read as authentic? I mean, I haven't. I haven't ever gone out of my way to seek out my parents. Um, the last time I saw him, my dad was probably when I was like seven or something. And it was just him trying to close himself off. He was like, hey, here's the end of our relationship. They did They did play it well because they were like, look, you basically pretended that Michael didn't exist. And as a result, he's lived in this hellhole for so long mm-hmm. the least you can do is use your lawyer or judge money to get us you know a nice accessible apartment or whatever but that's i don't know my interaction was my dad just kind of showed up in a mall and it's like here's a couple hundred bucks have fun yeah yeah the, the money you use to buy 007 with Exactly, which was awesome. Do you think it would be like, do you think it's kind of a disrespect to that whole situation that it's a throwaway moment in in the movie where they just like blackmail the parent as opposed to like, you could technically make a whole fucking movie about that. You can make a whole movie about what? About um, disabled parents who have no relationship with their child because. Yeah, that's true. But do you really want to watch that whole three scenes where there's like a back and forth? I mean, in the hands of the of, of the right director, it could be a fantastic film. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I wasn't ever mad about it. I thought you really liked that line too, where he was like, because the, the dad was like, okay, you want this? Obviously, I can afford it. I'm a judge or whatever. But what then? Like, what would you want next? And Rory was like, if you do this, you get what you had before we came in. Yeah, that was a wonderful line. If if you do this for us, what you'll just get to go back to pretending that I didn't even exist. Yeah, we'll we'll give you back the dignity that we just took from you for making you confront this. Right. Like you get to pretend that Rory didn't come here today. Yeah. And assert himself. So I think that was a good point in the movie for them. To just switch gears and start to be independent. I guess it could have been interesting to try to navigate what it might have been like if the dad was more involved, but it was believable to me that 
the dad didn't want to be involved and was just like, all right, fine, I'll buy you a, a condo. It's just that this is the second movie now that sort of dismisses the absentee parent as like a shithead that doesn't deserve a full role in the film. And yet, like parental neglect looms in the lives of disabled people who have lived that experience quite profoundly. And so it would be really worthwhile to explore that more more meaningfully, I think. Like if I were to reach out to one of my biological parents um, and try to make a connection, I don't know what would come of that. It would probably go somewhere similar where they would be like, I'm glad you're doing okay. Um, did you want something from me? Yeah. I don't, I really, I, I don't know what it would be like. Maybe it would be completely different. I guess there's just some dimensions of life where closure is not really possible. Yeah. It's like you, but you have, you have those attachments with your foster parents. And I guess to you, like they are the people that deserve your, your uh, affection or I don't know what it would do for me. It might just kind of reopen old wounds or something. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. I don't know. But yeah, I can see what you're saying. Like, it's a not uncommon trope for really parents to be. It kind of seems like they're one of two. They're like hover parents or they're distant and aloof and not really present at all. (laughs) There's no middle ground. I don't know. I I think my parents are the middle ground of that. That's awesome. Yeah, for all the issues that I have with them on a daily basis <laughs> and the, the ways in which they do sort of subtly micromanage my life and loom over it, uh, I think I couldn't ask for better parents. Oh, that's awesome. And my foster parents are perfect. Like they, you know, they're, they're loving and caring and supportive, uh, but they also let me be my own person. Mm-hmm. I don't know, without going into it, I don't think... This is the time to just dive into my whole like biological parent situation. Overall, I think that the reason they aren't very involved, aren't at all involved in my life, is because they weren't equipped to deal with having a child with a disability. And I think that's often the case. Nobody is ever equipped to deal with it. So I think that's why you get often a hover parent because they're like i don't know what i'm doing so i have to just make sure whatever i do is the best thing i can do yeah or they're like i don't know what i'm doing so i'll let someone else do it uh, or in yeah. your case you know they've figured it out which is awesome i i don't know it's probably a lot more complicated than that and i can't really diagnose it on the fly uh but yeah i mean my parents had two disabled kids and still somehow stayed married and still haven't driven each other completely crazy. <laughs> uh, and, you know, they've also suffered several trials in recent years, independent of us, their children. And so, yeah, they are resilient motherfuckers in every way. I think maybe it's just like when you have kids and when you're ready to have kids. Yeah. Sort of where you're at mentally when you have kids. Like yeah. My foster parents, they're foster parents because... They're just really, really good parents. Yeah. And so they're just like, hey, we're pretty good at this. Let's have 45 of them. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I think that's why it worked for them. Mm -hmm. Whereas like 
my biological mom had me when she was pretty young and my dad was like uh already married to someone else oh. and it was like a fling or whatever and so then my mom had me and was like hey so i'm having a baby you want to maybe like leave your wife for me and stuff turns out the baby's also disabled and he's like nah i'm gonna chill with my wife and then my mom's like well i can't do this alone and so then I went into foster care. Again, I feel like a fucking if we just wrote your life down verbatim, like without any kind of artistic license or <laughs> like writerly inclinations, it would just be the most like heart wrenching collection of. Oh, I mean, fuck, that, man. none of that. I mean, that's why I was like, I don't know if I'm ready to, because it doesn't bother me, but I understand how saying it can make people go oh wow like that's crazy without peppering it with jokes it's all i just know that i'm fine and it was literally 25 years ago yeah i did go to counseling though like it wasn't just like i wasn't just a five-year-old kid that was cool with it yeah i was a mess at the beginning and i was super shut off had a big walls up everywhere uh-huh. And I had to go to counseling for it. And uh, as a child, yeah, family counseling. It was, like a, it was just me, but it was like a family counselor. I actually remember uh, one of my favorite like memories of that counseling was I was so distrustful of people because my mom abandoned me that when I went to counseling for it, uh-huh. I saw this. I saw the counselor uh, as soon as I went into his office. I was like, okay, maybe I'll be able to like talk about some of my issues, solve some of my problems. And as a five year old, I was probably like eight or ten or something at this point. Like you're still single digits. Is this why you're so emotionally literate? Because you're talking extensively about your feelings at such a young age. Well, I wasn't. You didn't let me finish the story. Because what actually happened was I got to the office and he. We're like sitting down and he's like, hey, my name's so-and-so. And I still remember his name, which is crazy. And then he's like, oh, wait, one sec. And he pushes a button on his phone, on his like office phone, and a red light turns on. And my immediate thought was, oh, he's recording the session. I don't want to be part of this. So I didn't say a single word for the entire hour that I was there because I was like, this guy... I don't want to be like some recording project, whatever. And so we just played Chinese checkers. That was the session. He was like trying to get me to open up, but I was like not having it. And then on my way out, I like sneakily looked at his phone and the button he pushed was privacy. So it was Uh like, it was like, don't call me. I'm in a session. And I was like, that was my first awakening. I was like, Oh, maybe everyone isn't bad. Wow. Did you continue to go to counseling through your adolescence? Yeah, I went to counseling. I, I even did counseling in uh, Carleton. I saw a counselor at Carleton. I did too. Yeah, it was helpful. It is super helpful, right? Yeah, I, I did counseling up until a few years ago. When I graduated, I stopped going because I didn't really want to pay for it. <laughs> because <laughs> it was included in your tuition right yeah okay okay and so once i graduated i was like well i don't know but then i found a guy 
who would do it over the phone for like 10 bucks a session. Mm-hmm. And I talked to him for a bit, but I don't know, the first session, he went on a big monologue about how he's a healer and how Ugh. he can like touch people and instantly heal them. No. And I was like, oh, I don't know if this is the thing for me. Oh, I've been approached by people in malls, like with like religious pamphlets and they're very touchy feely and they make promises yeah. to cure your broken legs and you just want to tell them to fuck right off. I want to tell them to cure more than my legs. Excuse me? I've definitely been healed so many times and it's never worked. Well, maybe it did. Imagine how disabled I'd be if those people hadn't healed me. (laughs) (laughs) You should call that guy the next time they tell you you need a COVID test. Yeah. If I test positive, I'll just call him. Like, can you just get rid of it? (laughs) Yeah. So that was the last time I went. I just kind of like stopped calling him. Where's your pamphlet now, motherfucker? (laughs) Back to the movie. Um, This is where things kind of got, they started to feel a little bit more formulaic for me, mm-hmm. even though they were still good because it was a wheelie movie. So it was formulaic for us, mm-hmm. but I think the average able-bodied person should still go out and watch it mm-hmm. because I think it's a very good light shone on disability. Yeah. They become roommates. Um, they're flat again. Like the, the set is super authentic. Um, they um they go through the process of hiring an in-house attend excuse me attendant um and naturally they select uh, a young woman who works at a grocery store that they both kind of want to sleep with but they don't really like objectify her or anything like that they just find her attractive and she's like affable and like a little bit nervous at first but ultimately up up to the task and then there's a kind of like o- obligatory buildup of unrequited romantic tension between Michael and this attendant. And then there's the necessary, uh, excruciatingly embarrassing scene of Michael, like trying to make a move on this attendant. Okay, we can't just skip over that scene. I just, can we please? Because it makes me cringe just like trying to. But that's why we have to talk about it. Oh no, again, again. It's just like that scene again in my left foot where he drinks himself to death. No, it wasn't that bad. This scene was real. It was comparably bad. No, this scene actually like, like I had not literally like I can only describe it as an out of body experience when I was watching it, because you could see it happening. And it was so well acted and well shot that I felt like I was, I feel like I knew that it was happening for real. Yeah, I knew it was happening before he actually like made the move. Like you yeah, could we see like the intent. Too. Yeah. And she sort of did as well because he, because like while showering with him, she, uh, observed you know like sides of him being excited he popped a sprout yeah yeah and he was like really ashamed of it and the movie's like pretty subtle about the tension between them and it's also pretty good at telling the audience how she feels and how michael feels and it's just this thing that happens but is no one's fault really truly except that you should never hire an attendant strictly because you're attracted to them 
Yeah. In the scene, it's basically like Michael, Rory, and the attendant. I can't remember her name. Yeah, I don't remember it either, actually. Uh, I can't remember. Just keep telling the story. Anyway, so the three of them go to this um, house party, and Michael and Rory are drinking, and they witness their attendant uh, getting friendly with a mutual friend of theirs. So Michael gets jealous, and he insists on having a a dance with her. And while they're dancing, he starts, like, kissing her waist, like, awkwardly, and, like, trying to, like, cup her hand. He's, like, like, basically straining for any amount of... Her name was Siobhan. Siobhan. Siobhan was her name. So he's just doing his best to create a moment, a tender moment between the two of them. And it it doesn't work. It falls completely flat. They actually have to... Siobhan actually has to ask someone uh, outside the dance floor to come and take Michael off of her because he's like kind of spastically like clinging it's really painful. Her face was so good too when she was like, Oh no, please don't let this be actually happening. Oh no, it's actually happening. Oh no, I need to make this stuff. Oh, I don't yeah. want to hurt his feelings, but yeah. I don't want this to happen either. Oh no, what do I do? Oh, this is so embarrassing. Oh, I feel so, it was like so real. I, I don't know what it is about like non-American movies, but there's 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 so much better at conveying like uh, subtle nuances of someone's emotions like just the complexity of all those feelings at once she's like everything i wish drew barrymore was <laughs> yeah like you could you you could watch her literally think like i should have spelled things out clear to michael before tonight yeah. and then you see like michael just feeling full of regret and then rory's off in the corner like like uh, empathizing for both of them and it's just this mutually um, awkward moment that feels right out of real life. We've talked about the boundary issue before, the attendant-client boundary. And it's one that we'll talk about probably as long as we're doing this or as long as we have attendance because it's an impossible boundary because you do develop those feelings. And sometimes it is easy to conflate love and gratitude which actually i think she mentions in one of her like leaving speeches yeah i mean they they eventually have it out like you know like after the party a couple of days later um she confronts michael and she's kind of exasperated and angry with him well because he says i love you yeah and she basically says like nothing about my behavior toward you entitles you to my affection just because you're disabled doesn't mean i'm obligated to entertain this i care about you and uh, i've appreciated working with you but i am not on board with this and i'm really uncomfortable and i wish you'd handled yourself better that was honestly such a good monologue like she Man. also called rory out too and she was like you know you want to be treated as equal but you can only be treated as equal once you give people the respect you demand from others. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the, the reciprocal nature of things. What I love about that scene is that you uh, like you see both sides of that coin and there are there are valued the perspectives on each. And um, no one is a traditional villain in any sense. No. And Michael 
is definitely having a, like a kind of late coming of age experience in all of this. And he's learning a bunch of lessons and he is in many ways at fault for what has occurred, but also, you know, like we all need a uh, TLC. And like, sometimes those relationships do happen. Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, and I, and I wish the movie had uh, given us a chance to see him succeed yeah. at, uh, at pursuing a romantic opportunity. I think it was like win, win or lose, lose, you know? Yeah. I, but it was still so, I really appreciated it because yeah. I, I, because I felt, I felt Michael's rejection, but I also completely respected the woman whose name I currently can't remember. Siobhan. Siobhan, thank you. I completely respected Siobhan's assertion of her boundaries. Yeah, exactly. And I kind of, I kind of wish that real conversations like that would happen in life itself. I know. Anytime I've been in those moments with attendance where it's like, will they want they? It never gets, well, not never, it has, but often doesn't get resolved in a very adult way. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, if it works out, it just kind of happens. And yeah. then you're just in that timeline where it's happening and everyone's okay with it. And if it doesn't work out, then it just gets uncomfortable and there's no like adult conversation where it's like, hey, I just don't feel this way. I get that you might and, you know, I don't owe you anything or whatever. It isn't working out. It rarely goes that way. And so like the way that or has for me, I'll say, it usually just either happens and that's how and then, oh, we're dating or it doesn't happen. And you're just like in this weird thing the way that she handled the boundaries was was really really good and like it 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 didn't feel like um, a moment of payoff in a movie like it felt like how those characters would have handled that situation which i greatly appreciated and i almost wish the movie would have ended there yeah where you know michael picks himself up off the floor and him and rory uh continue to live together and they're better for it. Yeah. If it just would have fucking ended there, then I I really would have been happy. Instead, we had to go through this bullshit that we've seen in way too many of these movies. Yeah. Where? The cripple dies. The cripple dies. Yeah. It Rory shit the bed. Rory Show you later. Yeah. And I like, do we have to go over this again? Why it's annoying when cripples die? Yeah. Yeah. You know, the follow it happens with the attendant, and then Michael feels a terrible amount of guilt. And then, you know, Rory just kind of randomly gets pneumonia, like total non sequitur. You know, the, the, the true reality of his prognosis is revealed. And Michael, um, in order to tie up loose ends, like goes to the independent living. Uh, parole board the Shawshank parole board and and makes a posthumous case for why Rory should be able to live independently and then he quote-unquote wins the silly legal battle it wasn't posthumous at that point it was like effectively because like they knew that he was going to die yeah we all knew he was going to die but I think they were doing it so that if he was to survive he could go live independently Okay, I thought it was just like a 
like a sad little win at the end of a... No, I think they were hoping that he was going to survive and like, hey, when you get out of here, you can live on your own. Well, he didn't get to live on his own because he fucking died. Yeah, they just let him die. And it's so dumb. Like, I'm so tired of this fucking bullshit. I was really depressed after. I know. You, I You sighed half a dozen times, like after the movie. And I was like, Anthony, you okay? Anthony? Yeah, you had to console me. Yeah, it's not real. It, they just did it for dramatic effect because of the writer's lazy. Like, like we're not all going to die horribly prematurely and not be able to self-actualize. Don't worry. It, it's going to be okay. Yeah. It, this movie is not worth your, your uh, grief right now. Uh, well, I, like many other wheelies, especially wheelies with MD and SMA, were given a prognosis of months. Yeah. And so... And granted, you have lived for months, but just like hundreds of months. May, many more than they told me I would, yeah. Yeah. And you'll live for hundreds more months. Yeah. I I, I feel like I will. I definitely feel very healthy. Yeah. But it's always been very real to me that, you know, you can't take life for granted. And I, I live arguably maybe too much in the present sometimes because I forget to like save money for the future or whatever. Yeah. And, um, I, I, you know, without trying to get too depressing, many people in my life have reminded me that every birthday is a milestone and I'm supposed to die and all this stuff that really I don't need to hear. Is it always like your parents that do that? Like you've never had like a girlfriend do that. It was my biological mom would do it. Oh, fuck off. Yeah. So it was only until I was like 15. But it was enough to like be ingrained in me. Just you should have been like, well, it, like if I have so little time left, shouldn't you be spending it with me, <laughs> fucker? Yeah, this is what she would say like on the phone. She'd be like, "How was your birthday party?" And I'm like, "Oh, I only turned eleven, so I didn't really do much." And she'd be like, "Get get my your foster mom on the phone. Don't you know it's a milestone for you?" Blah blah blah. So I've always been hyper aware, and so when I see this happen. I was also just starting to identify with Rory's character because um, he was written for me, you know, like he has MD and, you know, he's trying to get the most out of life. And I relate to both of those things. And um, and like James McAvoy is really funny. Yeah. He's, and like affable, it, like he's likable in that role. I actually res- respect him quite a lot. Right. Uh, like, I think he's somewhat unre- un- un- underrated. He like totally carried that recent trilogy of M. Night Shyamalan movies. All right. Okay, I'll shut up. <laughs> uh, but yeah, he does a really good job, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It was very convincing. Yeah, so why the fuck did they kill him? It's just because in every movie where a main character has a an illness, they got a fucking... I think, yeah, they wanted you to leave the movie theater a little shocked. And because you're shocked, you thought it was a good movie. Well, and then they also like that that image of the empty wheelchair, like in his bedroom, like with the attendant, like sitting adjacent to it. And it's like, oh, my God. And then Michael, like hearing him uh, in the room, like when he's like surveying the suite, like shortly after the funeral. Oh, yeah. There are so many better ways you could have ended that movie. Yeah. Because to me, it like lost so much credibility at that point totally the movie was doing so well and you know we already talked about all the reasons why it was doing well yeah 
but afterwards I just felt betrayed almost. I have this idea that I, I really love slice of life movies, like movies that are character studies where nothing really happens, but you do get a kind of insight into a person that you would love to get to know in real life, how they solve problems, um, the kinds of things that they're interested in, their senses of humor, um, how they talk to other people and how other people react to them. I'm thinking of movies like Happy Go Lucky with uh, Sally Hawkins or uh, an Adam Driver indie movie from Jim Jarmusch called... uh, Star Wars. No, not Star Wars. Although I suppose the second Star Wars movie was an indie film in a way. But anyway, slice of life movies. I would love for there to be... A cripple slice of life movie. Yeah, where it just ends happy. Yeah, and instead of it being like uh, like tediously melodramatic, like even the title, like Inside I'm Dancing, is so like Hallmark card, like sentimental bullshit. Like, well, like, they did say that in the, when when that when that line came up in the movie was chill. Like it, they were in the club, yeah, and they were like dancing, but obviously. James McAvoy's character isn't really moving. Yeah. And Michael's like, you're not even dancing. He's like, inside. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But out of context, it's pretty cheesy. Yeah, but Rory O'Shea was here is even worse. I would like to see the cripple movie called, like, Inside I'm Doing My Taxes. (laughs) Or, like, you know, Inside I Have a Slight Bit of Indigestion. (laughs) Or... Inside, I'm in my Hoyer lift. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Inside the shower. Yeah. Inside paratranspo. <laughs> Inside just, my mailbox. <laughs> just, just a movie that is like content to film you doing your fucking thing because you're just like inherently an interesting guy. And uh, that movie, if it ended with them just getting a new attendant and realizing that. You know, everything was going to come up okay. Mm-hmm. You know, that would have been awesome. That would have been great. Like, if it ended just like a few minutes after that last confrontation and they just yeah. moved on, I would have been totally happy. They realized that, you know, she's not the only girl out there and they can find another girl that Michael can fall in love with mm-hmm. that maybe even reciprocates. Yep. And then... The, the moment she reciprocates, the movie ends or something. Maybe not even that. Maybe they just like exchange a, a smile after the interview. And it's That's like, what oh. I mean. I don't mean like she goes down on them. <laughs> Imagine. That would be a good ending too, though. A happy ending. In, inside. <laughs> I'm not even going to make that joke. No, yeah, we'll leave that. Leave it. Yeah, it had so much going for it and then kind of blew it a bit at the end. Not it didn't blow it as bad as I care a lot. It still did a lot more good than I care a lot did. I think so too. Because I, I care a lot lost me halfway through, and this movie lost me with like ten minutes left. Yep, it was the first eighty percent was golden. Yeah, and the last twenty was was just hackneyed trash. Yeah, almost mocking. Yeah, it was. It was a, like, you you described it as like a betrayal. Yeah, I felt betrayed. Yeah. Because I, I got so invested in the character. Well, in both characters, but I really identified with Rory's character. And then he just goes and dies. And like you said when we were watching it, like, everyone dies. We get that. You don't just show us. Yeah, imagine if every 
<laughs> Imagine if like every movie ended with the main character dying, like independent of genre. Yeah. Yeah. 40 year old virgin. Like he like fucks uh, Catherine Keener happily ever after then cut to 40 year old, 40 years later. And it's his funeral. He's dead. He's just dead. And she's not fucking him anymore. Yeah, no, they're not fucking. Like, their marriage was strained up to the moment he died. They were married to different people and stuff. Yeah, it's just like... They moved on, they broke up. Yeah, like... (laughs) It's so stupid and cheap. It also, like, doesn't... It's not really a payoff to anything that preceded his death. Yeah. There's no fucking point. It just made him even more of the manic, manic pixie dream cripple. Yeah, because he just dies at the end, and oh, now his legacy is the only thing left. Right, and now he's like literally uh, like a guardian angel of chaos. Bullshit. Yeah. Anyway, I still think people should watch it. They totally should. Spoiler alert: He dies at the end, but uh, it still gives you a very good, dark, uh, unglossy, uh, gritty, like you said, look at what it's like to be to, to scrape by as a wheelie and to just like hack your way through the world the dynamics that come from that the relationships that come from that it's also yeah just there's a lot of good stuff that, that the movie does work so we can't write it off altogether but i just wish we could have a different ending i think that was one of the strongest films we've watched so far yeah like apart from maybe crip camp crip camp was also really good because the wheelies were involved in the making of the thing. Yeah. And it was a documentary. It wasn't trying to do anything. No, it was totally like fucking slice of life. Yeah. And then this movie was really, really good at presenting disability authentically. Um, but just maybe they could have left out the part that we all know happens so that we can just live in the positive. Yeah. Because otherwise, I don't know. It, I get insecure about the whole, because I've had girls say to me, like, you know, like, I like you and I'd love to be able to, like, make this work. But the fact that I don't know how long you're going to live for really scares me. And I don't think I can commit to that, which is, like, amplified by this kind of movie ending. Because it's like, I get it. Yeah, maybe I'm not going to live as long as everyone else. But how do you know? Maybe I'll outlive you. You being the girl that's saying that to me. How many fucking women have said that to you? <laughs> Two. Jesus Christ, that is way too many. Yeah. You should tell them that you want to die during orgasm. And <laughs> <laughs> challenge them to kill you. <laughs> if you can murder me this way. Yeah. <laughs> then be then like when you're still alive afterwards, be like, nope, try again. Better luck tonight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway good movie uh i feel like we shouldn't end it on a dark note though do we do we do a wheel breaker i have a wheel breaker do you have one i do but you can go first i'm not sure if this is controversial but i think i say that now before every wheel breaker and i need to stop doing that right i wonder if we're gonna have the same wheel breaker all right so you get to be able-bodied yeah. But whenever you have a sexual thought about a person, you have to tell them. Not the not the thought itself, but just that you momentarily thought of them in a sexual way. Oh god. So like I just had a sexual thought about you. You can preface the situation. 
you can tell them why you're telling them and that you can't control it or else you end up back in a wheelchair. <laughs> right. Which I'm sure they'll understand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, like, in some situations, maybe it could come off as, like, flirty and fun. But in other situations, and probably even in that case, only a few times. I feel like I have less, uh, like, socially unacceptable or intrusive sexual thoughts in my 30s over my 20s. So, so maybe- you're thinking you won't say it as often. Probably not, and I maybe wouldn't. Get I don't into... know though. That might work against you because you'll think that you're not thinking it, and yeah. then you're just gonna like make yourself. Oh no, I just ha- I just had one. Oh, sorry. Yeah. I was really trying not to, and I just had a sexual thought about you. Yeah, yeah. And it's like your bus driver. Occasionally, it might work out in your favor. They might be. Yeah, know. like it. It could be very forwarded. Someone's like, great. It could be like an opening line that might. You know, yeah, but then what if you're in a relationship and you see another girl? That's a huge problem. I never thought of that. And then you say it to the girl, and either your partner has to be so cool and be like, Yeah, he does that. <laughs> it's the only way to keep him walking. <laughs> or she's not cool with it. She's like, I can't. You can't keep saying that stuff. Yeah, this is a slippery slope. Uh, it is true that over time, the frequency at which you'll have these thoughts will probably decrease, but maybe only because, but or, but maybe not if you're in your head thinking, I can't have a sexual thought right now because I have to, I don't want to. Yeah, it would just become a neurosis. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think so because I think it would just be, I think you would end up very quickly on a list somewhere. Like, you would say it to the wrong person. Yeah, you'd get in trouble. You would think of it, you'd have a sexual thought about someone, and you're like, wait, I don't even, that can't be appropriate. Whether it's, like, someone you shouldn't look at because it's, like, your friend's girlfriend, Mm -hmm. or, like, you're in a relationship and it's another girl, or, you know, someone who's too... uh, Yeah, no. You you don't think, like, the the high-concept... the high concept of the situation would absolve you of any of those uh, pitfalls. What do you mean? People would forgive you because otherwise you'd end up disabled. Actually, maybe this is too meta gaming, but I think that we're getting to a point where being disabled isn't going to be the worst crime. It's not going to be some social isolation that it once was. So people oh. might, they'll be like, really? You think this is better than being disabled? Like, come on, man. Don't be, like, being disabled isn't that bad that you have to be a perv about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. I think we're starting to enter a world where disability is becoming more and more commonplace and accepted and, dare I say, welcomed. Yeah, fair point. I, I just, uh, for comedy's sake, it would be hilarious, but I'm afraid that you could actually give me this power. And then I'd instantly be a sexual predator. Like somebody would report me, I would get canceled so fast. It would happen, yeah. What if it was like they weren't around and I was in the shower thinking about it? <laughs> yeah. Do I have to text them? <laughs> yeah, you have to call them, yeah. I have to call them up and be like, I'm so sorry. I know it's early in the morning, you're probably sleeping. <laughs> yeah. Sorry to wake you up. How are you doing, by the way? <laughs> yeah. 
how's how's things? You said your your dog was sick. Is he okay now? Okay, that's great. I just want to say before I go, I had a sexual thought about you. <laughs> I hope to see you again soon. I'll take care. <laughs> you 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 get like superpowers if they ask you what the thought was explicitly. <laughs> <laughs> you can like lift five hundred pounds that day. Yeah. You just get really good at sneaking it into a conversation. Just be like, hey, how's it going? I had a sexual thought about you. Do you want to go to the movies tomorrow? You can't even squeeze it in. No. Just like at the cashier. Uh, how do you want to pay for that? I had a sexual thought about you. Probably Visa. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Do you think we can keep this, Wheel Breakers? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right, I have one. It's not controversial, maybe. Well, maybe, depending on who you ask, everything could be. But um, you're fully able-bodied. Uh-huh. Oh, wait, so I have to say wheel or no wheel. Wheel. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay, so fully able-bodied, the only issue is you actually talk now like Michael Connelly. You basically can't really talk. So you're fully able-bodied, but except for that. And I couldn't go to speech therapy, or speech therapy doesn't help. It doesn't help. Yeah, you've tried. Uh, you can sign. You can do sign language. I can write. Yeah, you can. You could use a board really quickly. You can type. Yeah, you know, wheel. there's other ways around. Or sorry, it. no wheel. Yeah, I, I do it. No, you do it. I would. What would you do? Would you? Would you write? I would. Yeah, you just bring a pad and paper. I would tweet. I would write. You'd be like Roger Ebert at the end. Yeah. You'd probably just be a good blogger. But then I'm asking, like, what what advantage would you have for being able-bodied at that point? If you're just going to be writing everything, what, you can walk up the stairs to talk to someone? Yeah. I guess. I could go for runs and get endorphins. And I could uh, play soccer. <laughs> <laughs> Like the video game or the real life thing? The real, the whole thing, the real thing, baby. Mm. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. I don't think I would do that. I would take up like dancing, probably. It's the same reason. Like, no, I mean, communication. And the thing is, if I didn't go to school for a comp sci, I would have gone for writing. So, like, and I've always needed a reason to write. And so that'd be a good reason. I guess you would become a very good writer very quickly. I think. Verbal communication is too important to me. I I don't think I'd want to. Yeah, I'm sorry. I wish I could have like made that funnier, but I think I just I would do it because there's so many things I want to try as an able-bodied person. Well, that in itself is it doesn't have to be funny. Yeah, I think it's it's just a fun exercise. I think, but you would do it in a heartbeat. You know what I want to do? I want to sit on a bar stool and not be afraid of falling off. I want to get drunk, like, at a bar, on a bar stool. I want to turn my head to the left. Yeah, that sounds amazing. <laughs> I wonder what's over there. <laughs> I wonder what my left shoulder looks like. I want to, like, actually go inside a, a building in Montreal. I want to scratch my head. <laughs> I want to swim in the deep end. I want to shave my own face. I want to drive a car. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. I want to drive a car, too. I think if I became able-bodied, I, the first thing I'd do is go on a road trip for two years. <laughs> really, honestly. No, I believe you. That would be amazing. I hope if you become able-bodied, like, if that's the deal and 
you don't get to speak, but I didn't take the deal, so I'm still disabled, but yeah. I do get to speak, so yeah. I can be your disabled interpreter. Right, you could. Yeah, that'd be awesome. And then we could just go on road trips all over the place. Yep, and we're not going to die at the end of the fucking movie. No, well, eventually, yeah. but the movie just ends sooner than that. Yeah, on a happy note. Yeah, I think I think that'll be awesome, going on a road trip. I've thought about driving even in my wheelchair, but it's literally just the price. It would be probably like 200k to get it all rigged up. I, I want to type with home row. <laughs> I want to do yoga. Uh, I wouldn't mind holding a baby without being afraid of dropping it. I want to try jump rope. Sounds fun. Try to dunk a basketball or dribble a basketball or do any kind of sport or go on a like mountain hike. Yeah. Maybe skydive. Yeah. Go on a roller coaster. Yep. I've been on a roller coaster, but I hated it because my hips wouldn't, I couldn't stay upright. Yeah. I think we talked about this last episode. We did. Yeah. Should we call it there, Tony? Yeah, let's call it there. Okay. That was a fun episode. It was. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys. Do you have any suggestions on movies we should watch? Send us an email. I have a list of uh, pending suggestions from friends, and they're all good. Nice. All right. Take care, everyone.